welcome to your At The Flicks Pod Shorts. We're here with a new series, Director on Director. What does that mean? Well, you're in the studio with us. We have director Phil Stubbs, the man behind the eagerly anticipated Last Chances, which Phil, I believe, is coming later this year. That's right, Jeff, yep. From a director standpoint, Phil is going to be talking about some of his favourite directors over the next couple of pod shorts. We're going to kick off with, I believe, one of your favourites, Peter Jackson. Absolutely. You've named Peter Jackson as your favourite director. What is it about him that impresses you so much? He has a very distinctive style, especially visually, but his storytelling, again, visual storytelling, I think is an absolute master. I mean, even if you go back to Bad Taste, which I saw in 1989, I think I saw it, but it came out a couple of years before that. But even if that's pretty uh, primitive, you can see the, the swooping camera going past and then, which is a typical move of his, that he probably had it on his shoulder because he just had this little camera that he filmed the whole film on. But his style was evident then. I thought it had a lot, you know, there was a lot there that was like the early Sam Raimi, like Evil Dead. Yes, definitely. Yeah, there is, I think there's definitely a bit of a similarity with Sam Raimi on the early ones. And then later on, his storytelling just became more complex and more, dare I say it, intelligent. And, you know, and then he went to Heavenly Creatures. and Love Heavenly Creatures. And we'll we can talk about that talk later. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously, you know, we don't even need to say Lord of the Rings. Well, let's stay on Lord of the Rings at the moment because, I mean, it is held up as his masterwork and quite rightly so. Do you hold it in such high regard? And what is? And if you do, what is it about it that really impresses you? I do, actually. And uh, I do because even though it's a gigantic film, tons of special effects and budget and casts, but he kept it so grounded, realistic as possible, which sounds strange for a fantasy film. But he wanted to make sure it, it looked absolutely real, like it was a real world. This is before he got very much into tons of CGI and green screen. So, you know, the suits of armor and everything, he made sure that his team, the fantastic Weta, he made sure they were doing authentic work as much as possible. And, and it just created this very believable, lived-in world. You know, he didn't have to go to that amount of detail. He could have still made it, but he did. And it just makes that extra bit of quality and an immersive experience for the audience. And I think that's uh, to be applauded, really. It's a question for you, which I, I, I'm always intrigued to know the answer on this. What was his relationship with Weta? Did he help found that? Or? He founded it, yeah. It's his company. Okay, and that goes back to the early days? Of that goes back of- to, I think it was, well, I think Weta really, well, Meet the Feebles, he started working with Richard Taylor, who's now the head of Weta. So I think it was from Heavenly Creatures onwards that he founded Weta to be able to, because they were based in New Zealand, they couldn't get to LA to hire Industrial Light and Magic in a typical kind of New Zealand Kiwi state of mind. Well, we'll do it. We'll find a way to do it. We'll learn how to do it. Let's, let's talk about Heavenly Creatures a little bit, because to me... That's more of a watershed film in Jackson's career than Lord of the Rings because prior to that, you had all the horror films, you had Bad Taste and Brain Dead and all of those. And then you have this film that must have caused mayhem in the New Zealand type of Daily Mail paper. Guy (coughs) who makes all these cheap horror movies is doing a reenactment of the most famous murder case in New Zealand and using the real locations to do it. I think people weren't that bothered about it i think they were just very surprised that the splatter movies as he called it the other guy who did that was going to such a different kind of film different kind of story a true story him and his writing partner fran walsh who is creative partner who she deserves a lot of credit because they really come together yeah Hmm. they really come as a package and even though peter jackson obviously is the director and he deserves all the plaudits he's got but it's him and fran walsh together his partner that they they basically do all the 
creating together. And later on in Lord of the Rings, Philippa Boyens as well, she was she joined the writing team and they were just very much a unit. They wanted to make sure they did the story justice, which people probably didn't believe at the time from the director of Bad Taste. Yeah. And as we all know, that they did. And the awards deservedly came flooding in and suddenly he was taken very seriously as a Yeah, filmmaker. I mean, what really impressed me is you've got this recreation of the murder going on, but then in the minds of the two girls, Kate Winslow playing one of the girls, I think one of her first screen mm. performances. I think, yeah, uh, may have been the first. Okay. But they go inside of the mind. They create a fantasy world. Yeah. So you can see what these girls are thinking, how they sort of combine and... Yeah, and they never um, sensationalise it. You know, they don't choose a side. They just you know, explore the minds of these girls. I just think it's, uh, it's an amazing film. And uh, pretty harrowing. It's extremely <laughs> harrowing, the, the recreation of the I murder. wouldn't recommend it to anyone of a nervous disposition. It gets an 18 certificate to this day. Neil would love it, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Have, have you seen it, Neil? Surprisingly, no, actually. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, when uh, you see the fantasy world of the people... That's not CGI. That's actually, those are actually costumes made to look like... Um, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, is that right? that's not CGI. That is where a lot of that Lord of the Rings came from. There were a lot of tests going on there, you know, that formulating adult ideas within that film, even to, like, the fantasy world with the villains. The villain looked like Orson Welles because yeah. they had seen The Third Man and that was a real influence on And his next film, The Frighteners, which was a complete left turn, uh, they took that a lot further and then realised they could start developing uh, the computer software for Lord of the Rings. But but yeah, Heavenly Creatures, I agree with you, was a huge watershed. Yeah. Because I don't think horror fans loved him and general kind of audiences loved Peter Jackson, but Heavenly Creatures is when he crossed that barrier into filmmaking that was highly lauded. Yeah, he, he was taken seriously. Very seriously. That. And his agent's phone must have been off the hook after that because it almost gave him an opportunity to almost do anything. And it was an interesting choice, again, to do The Frighteners, which he filmed in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, The Frighteners, not many people talk about it. I love it. I love it. It's definitely an acquired taste because it, it, it genre hops yes. like mad. But I love it. And But it did not, it bombed really terribly when it came out. He was actually about to make King Kong in 96 after The Frighteners. And at the time, the studio, I think it was Universal, they realised that Godzilla was about to come out by Emmerich. Mighty Joe Young by Disney was about to come out and they thought we do not need to make a third monster film. Jackson's favourite film as well, the original King Kong. So they told him we're pulling the plug on King Kong. So he was absolutely devastated. The Frighteners, yeah, it's definitely a comedy, but it it has halfway through the film, it arguably turns into pure horror. And I think that's some people's problem with it because it starts off like this supernatural fun comedy with these ghosts and because originally he wanted it to be a family film. Did he? He, oh, want, he wanted that. the Frighteners to be a family film, released at Halloween, and the studio went, actually, this is going to be a big summer blockbuster. And it went up against Independence Day. Mm. And it bombed. If it had been a little Halloween film, it, I think it would have served better. But anyway, so, so it did terribly. You know, nobody was... The studio obviously weren't happy with the end result. And, and there's some... And you <clears> talk <throat> about the comedy in the first part of the film. Yeah. And again, his, one of the things for Peter Jackson that's in the early horror films, not so much in Heavenly Creatures... But he has this balance of horror and comedy. I think so. And and you've got, we'll go on and talk about Lord of the Rings in a bit, but you, you've got that balance there of some nice little jokes that run through And it, it doesn't cross the line where, to me, where you're suddenly kind of thrown out of the film. It, it keeps it in the story. Yeah. But when there's a funny bit, it's still within the tone of the story. Well, uh, and I'll give you an example from Lord of the Rings before we get there, which is... 
the Battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah. And you've got the dwarf character, Gimli. Gimli. The one with the funny ears. Legolas. Legolas, thank you. Uh, <laughs> the one with the funny ears. That's brilliant. I love and, and, the... they, and they keep in count of who's got the highest score of yeah. the body count. And that was just it's a fine. really funny picture. It it's, in, it's totally in there. And the Frighteners, he definitely did that. I like Michael J. Fox in it. Yeah. I think I think he was he was cast really well. Yeah. Um, Arlie Ermey as yeah, playing yes. the ghost of the character from, from Full, Full Metal, Metal Jacket. Jacket. And it works so well. But yeah. a lot of people seem to misunderstand the frontners or yeah or it wasn't what they expected i don't know but it, it, it hasn't re- i don't think it's really resonated with well, massive audiences but for those who like it like me and you i, th- I think it's yeah think i've it's got cool. a little story about it actually so i once went to a talk being given by d wallace stone oh yeah and she was talking about making the frighteners this was i think the, the third lord of the rings film was about to come out and she was full of praise for jackson and what happened when, because she was married to an actor, Christopher Stone, they were both in The Howling many years before that. And she was in E.T. Yes, in E.T., yep. yeah. But where she met her husband, I think, was The Howling. And <clears throat> he died of a heart attack. He Well, he had a heart attack and he was in intensive care and it didn't look like he was going to make it. She was in New Zealand filming The Frighteners. The company were loath, because of the contract and where they were up against the filming and everything they wanted to do with the film, loath to let her leave the set. Jackson hired a plane to get her to a main airport and get back, paid for everything, all wow. out of his own pocket. That's amazing. Um, so that shows, you know, the measure of the man that he is. Yeah, so I think... Um, and I think the special effects um, for the time, I think, were state of the art. I mean, oh, in amazing. 1996, to have a figure come through like the wallpaper yeah. at the time, I think it was pretty revolutionary. He was already starting to push yeah. the boundaries. Okay, he didn't have a gigantic budget. I also like the fact he filmed it in New Zealand. He refused. He said, I'm not, I'm not making it yeah. in America. We can say it's America, which they do in the film. And, and I was surprised when I found out it wasn't America. I think, uh, you know, personally, I think they might as well have... Well, it's not my film, but I think they might as well have said it was New Zealand, but it's set in an American small town. But again, it's got all these elements there, the, the swooping camera, yeah, the comedy, the, the big set pieces. There's really complex set pieces going on. And again, another thing of The Frighteners I really liked was Danny Elfman's music score. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, is this the only time I think he worked with Elfman? It's the only time. And Danny Elfman worked with him because of Heavenly Creatures. Is that right? I tell you what I just got. The DVD of the Frighteners Special Edition is fantastic because it used to be a laser disc. The f- extra features on that are in-depth. Abs- they're huge, almost, almost as much as the Lord of the Rings disc. So if you're a fan of that film, I really recommend because it, it really goes into everything about the making of that film. Yeah. Which... Uh, he does like his, his extra features. He, he does, does. does like to do it properly. And I'm glad because I've learned yeah. a lot from him, which is one of the reasons why. Yeah. Well, I'm a great believer in what I think I might have mentioned to you before, what Spike Lee said, that one of the best training you can get is DVD commentaries. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And uh, really good ones are, are, are The Frighteners, I, un- I think underrated, highly enjoyable, and I would recommend it. Completely agree. You've seen it, Graham, have you? No. You've never seen The Frighteners? No, it- it's I don't going need to on, ask, Neil. It's going on my list, but <laughs> yeah. as I said earlier, my list now has its own gravitational you, field. It's sort of large. You would love it. Honestly, you'd really love it. Yeah. It is very funny. At the moment, the serial killing starts, yeah, you know, when, when he does the flashback. It takes a turn into horror. Yeah, uh, but it's still good. Michael J. Fox can take you through this. You know, he's mm. so good an actor. Yeah. He's taking you into what is essentially a real horror movie. It's a shame Lucy's but, um, not here. I'd be interested in her views on this. But Jackson wanted to be a PG-13, and the ratings board, were just they just wouldn't. They cut as much as they could, and the ratings board said, no, but it's R-rated. So in the end, he thought, right, 
in that case, and then he put Gore back in. All right. So, so he went from that, and as you said, it didn't work out. He wanted to do King Kong. King Kong was next, and then Universal pulled the plug and said, there's no way that's happening. So then him and his partner had a think, and he said, there hasn't been a really good fantasy film for years that's been really done properly. And they tried to write their own, and then I think she said, why are you bothering to write your own? Why don't you just do Lord of the Rings? And he was like, so they looked into who got the rights. That's a whole other story. I was going to say that was That's, that was not a fun. And Weinstein was involved. Weinstein was involved, it. and he wanted it to be one film. Jackson and Fran Walsh they fought against it, fought against it, and they'd already spent about twelve million on uh, pre-production. And Harvey Weinstein said, "Well, I'm just going to sack you, and I'll get another director to do Lord of the Rings." But they resisted so much, and then uh, in the end, they convinced him to let them out of the deal. He said, "Okay, you've, you've got four weeks." to find somebody else who's going to make this film, which is, in Hollywood terms, it's almost almost impossible. To get another studio to do a multi-million pound in four weeks is just unheard of. So they tried and tried, and they ended up at New Line. And uh, they thought, to cut a long story short, they thought they just wanted to do another one film. But they actually said, no, we want the, there's three books, so let's do three films. And then that's when it all started happening, much to their relief. And then jumping ahead again, but we'll go back to Lord of the Rings. But uh, at the end of Lord of the Rings, Universal then said, about this King Kong thing, maybe we should uh, do that. It was that. after Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think one, one of the things with Peter Jackson is he doesn't enjoy all the politics and all the setup? I just get that impression. He hates it, I think. I think he said he hates the business side. Yeah. And uh, how he must, what he must have gone I mean, how they Lord got Lord of the Rings, Rings made, yeah. it's, it, it's, an unbel- it's a story in itself. It was a real battle just to to make it happen. And that's before they even get to the film set. That was just all the red tape and who owns the rights. Yeah, because it was left over from when they did the animated film, Ralph Bashi's film in 78. Yeah, which was, as we know, one half of the story. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. sequel never happened because that bombed. And yeah. it was possibly the worst film ever. <laughs> I, as a, as a huge fan of the books, I... Hated it. I, I went to see it twice because I thought, "Is it me?" And after halfway through the second time, I went, "No, this is actually terrible." They used a lot of rotoscoping because the it, rotoscoping it's like, it's like they they couldn't. It's like they ran out of budget or something to do proper animation. So there's yeah. So that film is full of bad well, rotoscoping. Yeah. Well, he the the story is. I mean, he was a fan of rotoscoping. We've gone off the point, but, but I just feel yeah. he tested it on another film called Wizards. And if you've never seen Wizards, it's really good. Oh, he's done some good animations yeah. with rotoscoping, but I just think in Lord of the Rings, no, and, it didn't yeah. really work better. Yeah. And, but that's another subject. Yeah, and <laughs> so he he had the you know he had the money. He was trying to get his cast. I mean, he wanted Connery for Gandalf, and the Connery studio wanted yeah. Connery. And, and it's never been proven, but as Connery, I think he did get the script, but he said he didn't understand it, didn't want to do it. And if you look at the timeline. I think it wasn't that long till he retired from films completely. No, it's about four, four years. years. Yeah, that was before he went on to League uh, of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Gentlemen. But okay. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring is I mean, they filmed all three films at the same time, which is I can't imagine how complicated and difficult that was. And they were for a big film, they were basically a low budget giant yeah. feature film. But he did another clever move. He used the Radio 4 1980s version of Lord of the Rings is his template. He did. And I only learned that recently, but yes, he did. Yeah, that's why he brought Ian Holm in yeah. as... Bilbo. Bilbo, thank you. Because he played Frodo. No, yeah. he, did he, he play Frodo? Frodo in the, in the, the radio series. Because the radio series 
did a, a really good way of how it divided, cut up the story. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and, and that uh, was a good template to follow. Yes, he didn't follow Ralph Bakshi's. No. no, funnily enough, no, he went he went with something that made sense. Although, again, he did change the end, and which caused a lot of problems. But I can understand why. I can understand why. But also, they had casting problems too, because most of the cast weren't that well known. But and they cast uh, a different Aragorn. I don't know, a lot of people, a lot of people know that Stuart Townsend. And it just wasn't working. And Mm. he'd convinced the studio that he really, really, really wanted him. And they were like, oh, go on then. And then when it wasn't working, he thought, "Uh uh-oh, now I've got to tell them I don't don't like him. But he thought he had to do it for the sake of the film. So um, they had already started filming and they had to push back Aragorn scenes and they had a week to find an Aragorn. And they watched a bunch of films uh, with Viggo Mortensen. And he had to say yes and be on a flight within seven days and commit 18 months of his life. And luckily for them and for us as film fans, he said yes. And, yeah. you know, and it's hard to imagine anybody else now, isn't it? Because he did such a, a great job. But everything about it is right. I mean, Howard Shaw's music. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. But you are right. I mean, as a huge fan of the books, and, and I'm, when I say a huge fan of the books, I read the books when I was 12 and reread them quite a few times. So when I went to see this, I thought, well, they won't have a decent art. Aragorn and you know Gandalf won't be right and uh, Legolas will be stupid and it'll just be the same as the previous animated one and and it just kept giving and giving and giving and I thought you know as I was watching I was like oh the the initial bit in the Shire I was thinking how are they going to do this because I remember when I first read it I thought well that's a, a fantastic book but it's unfilmable and then here it was the hobbits being small and the normal sized people. And it just worked with all that false perspective stuff they did. And then we get introduced to Aragorn and then we get the, the Dark Riders and they're just all perfect. And then we meet Legolas and Gimli and they're brilliant as well. And it just keeps going and going. And then you meet Boromir, who in the book is quite not a, a likable character, but you really got Boromir and what you know, J.R.R. Tolkien was trying to do with Boromir, this sort mm. of last minute of redemption thing. It was just, oh, it's just, um, I can not forget coming out of that movie and actually almost hyperventilating. <laughs> it was that good, you know. I was thinking, <laughs> they've done it. That's it. I can now go and watch the next two without... Well, if the first one had bombed, they they would have been in trouble because oh, they've, yeah. they've got yeah. two in the can that cost an absolute fortune. But luckily they'd pre-sold a lot of it beforehand, so true they, they, also it was going up against the very first harry potter film at the time okay and i remember being very much on the lord of the raid side was wasn't it and i yeah. think harry potter beat it which is not surprising really but um, both films made a ton of money they did but so how did he do the three did he film one and then finish that and start on no, two no he filmed all three at the same time so in the morning he might be doing look fellowship of the ring in the afternoon he was doing scenes from return of the king but the first four months was purely Fellowship of the Ring, just to give him a head start, because that was the first film released. But as soon as that four months was up, and that was mostly the four Hobbits. And then after that, they, they did all three films. I can't imagine what headspace you'd be in to do that. I mean, it's leaping, not even later in the same film, a different film. It's, uh, it's quite an incredible thing, really. How they. I mean, you had an intense experience making your film, because you were up against it solid for three weeks. Yeah, and, but this and- doesn't quite compare though no. i think he slept three hours a night or something and he worked six six days a week but it's all there on the screen yeah all that hard work every piece of that hard work that's is on the screen when you, you watch that you think and yeah, i would say worked on this it's all been downhill from there oh yeah that's a different well no that's what we're going to go into we'll go into next. that we'll go yeah. into that yeah yeah because i think 
Let's look at what that. He then got. He, he then could got, do anything he wanted. He so could. He then realised his, his dream, dream was always King Kong. So yeah. it got cancelled in '97. Just as an aside on that, did you see that he then filmed before doing any of that the missing bit from the 1933 film? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I know he did that. Yeah, yeah I've got it somewhere. That okay, and for our listeners. Okay, so in, in <laughs> right, so, translation, so in, translation, in, please. Right, yeah. in, in, in the original King Kong, there was a sequence that was filmed. The monster. It's called the Monster Pit. If you're familiar with the film. When the men are trying to get across the tree bridge, mm-hmm. yeah. the Kong is shaking them off and you see them fall. And yeah. that's the end of it when they fall off there. But what happens is they fall into a pit and they're all still alive because they've landed in mud. But creatures start coming out of the walls and start eating like Which giant Which he put insects. into his remake. Yes, well. he put that sequence in there. And we'll come to that we'll come in a moment. That. Yeah. So that sequence was fir- allegedly filmed in 1933, but deemed so horrific it was cut. I've actually read... Edgar Wallace's novelization of the original King Kong, and that is in there and it is the most horrific bit of the book. So if there's anything like that, you could understand. And bear in mind, we're at the time of the Universal Horror Cycle, Dracula and Frankenstein, you saw what was happening in the UK. Yep. It's getting banned left, right and centre. So this thing comes out, you're not having it. And it, the film has disappeared. So when there's a special edition of King Kong being filmed, I don't know if he made the approach or they made the approach to him, but he then... I wouldn't but, be surprised if it was him because he's, yeah. he's such a huge... Yeah. aficionado of that film. Yeah. So he yeah. refilmed that missing sequence from the script, the original script. I've got that somewhere, what, what he's filmed. So it's uh, it is very impressive. Yeah, I thought, uh, well, that's answered a question because I thought that was just part of his version, but uh, that's for the... But, and I would say, and I'll be controversial again, and I'll throw this then back to Phil, I actually think it was a waste of time in the remake because the, that went on too long, and you could you could also see it was cut out for pacing. I think definitely. After the film, he looked he lost a lot of weight. He did. He yeah. looked wrecked. I think um, he from Return of the King halfway through post production, he was starting Kong at the same time, and the post production of Return of the King was a nightmare in terms of schedule. So then he was doing Kong as well, and he goes straight into production on King Kong. Yeah, I, I can see why he lost a lot of weight. I think uh, I think he pushed himself yes. quite a lot. And, and I think, as I said, the result on screen, there are moments in there, and James Newton Howard's score is brilliant. He did have a falling out with Howard Shaw. And the, Howard Shaw's in the film, did you know that? I think so, yeah. Yeah, he's so. the conductor but, when uh, they unveil Kong as the eighth wonder of the but world. I think you can oh. see... I think we were talking about earlier about um, in filmmaking generally, but you can see when a script is kind of rushed a yes. little bit. And yeah. I hate to say it, but the script is the yeah. weakest part of that film. And I think he recently said he watched King Kong in a hotel room because it was on telly, and he he would have cut half an hour of it at least. Yeah, and to cut half to say half an, half an hour. hour wow. yeah. I mean, for a director to say I'll cut two minutes is painful. Yeah. So for him to yeah. say he would have easily cut half an hour out of it, yeah. that shows. You know what he thinks yeah. of it now. I think, and it, yeah. it, let's face it, it is it way is too long. way too long. Yeah. I mean, the minute I heard about the pre-production of it, and I heard it was going to be three hours long, I instantly thought this is not going to turn out too great because yeah. it's not a three-hour story. No. It's a simple story. The nineteen thirty-three film is very simple. You know, um, you know, it's very well done, way ahead of its time, but it's not really something that could be stretched into three hours, and that's a yeah. Something that can come up later on for his future films yeah, as well. And, and it's a foretaste, yeah, exactly <laughs> right, of what was to come. But before we get on to The Hobbit, whatever you think of it, he had more controversy with The Lovely Bones. Yeah. So he picked up that project that Lynn Ramsey was going to film. Yeah. 
he stepped into it because he wanted to direct it. And again, he had the clout then to do what he wanted. Absolutely. And the result is it's okay, but it's nothing special. I agree with you. Yeah, I, I'm not a massive fan of that film. So for anybody who hasn't seen Lovely Bones, it's about uh, a young girl who's murdered. Her spirit won't move on. It's staying on Earth and trying to help the family get to the murderer, who she knows, but nobody else has that, has that um, view of it. So in a way, it could have been approached like something like Heavenly Creatures. Yeah. And the book of Lovely Bones does a lot of that. It has, actually has I, I was going to say, the book I thought was very, very good yeah. uh, and very effective and yeah. very kind of harrowing and thought-provoking. Yeah. And the film wasn't, I didn't find it harrowing or thought-provoking. It, it was like, the film was like it tried to make it into a slightly watered-down, entertaining film. Yes. But I don't think that story is something that can be just an entertaining film. No, uh, that's right. And the Peter Jackson who made Heavenly Creatures, if he'd made Lovely yes. Bones... I think we'd have seen something very, very different. I agree. And I, I think that could have been very special. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that, but the version that was made, uh, yeah, I'm not a massive fan. So uh, now, And again, is that over long or is it just... It's is, not a length problem. It's more yeah. the tone of it, I think. And, is that um, just through exhaustion? And as he's kind of... I just think it's misconceived. The tone he went for, I didn't think was appropriate for it. I mean, when they do these kind of mm. afterlife sequences, it really goes over the top with these fantasy images. And, and I... Towards the end, if I remember rightly, it kind of goes towards a kind of teen romance kind of... You have to see the film it's, to know what I'm on about. Yeah, yeah. But towards the end, it goes towards this kind of teen romance angle. And it's, it just feels... It just doesn't feel... Heaven, it, heavenly Creatures broke a lot of rules. This is standard. Yeah. Mm. I think that's, and I think yeah. that the story deserved a, just a different approach. Yeah. But, you know, every filmmaker, you know, not every film is going to be a masterpiece. No. And that's fair. And speaking of masterpiece, we've got to touch it. The Hobbit. Three films of The Hobbit. Yes. I mean, there's so many controversial things about The Hobbit. It's a long list. But as we all know, it's meant to be two films. Yeah. Mm. And there meant to be another director. And it was, of course, Guillermo del Toro. And uh, that would have been interesting. Yeah. yeah. No yeah. one knows. They have not released an image of what that would have been like. But uh, Peter Jackson was basically happy to produce Guillermo del Toro's. But because of studio problems and rights problems with MGM, it got delayed and delayed and delayed. And Guillermo del Toro was living in New Zealand for doing not, not doing nothing. He was doing tons of pre-production. But in the end, he had to say, well, I've, I've got to try and have a film career. So there was no director. Peter Jackson didn't particularly want to direct it. Not many people know that. But he just, he wanted to help the studio out. They were spending millions. And he kind of gave in to pressure and said, okay, I'll do it. But they couldn't turn the clock back. This is the problem. This is one of the major problems. Guillermo del Toro had at least 18 months of pre-production. Lord of the Rings had three years plus of pre-production before they even got wow. near a camera. He had something like two months on The Hobbit. They had to go all the way back because he couldn't use Guillermo del Toro's designs, sketches, nothing. It was going because Peter Jackson couldn't do a del Toro film. So he had to start from scratch, but in a very short period of time. And as we were saying earlier, when scripts are, when things are rushed, it's when you you can see the quality doesn't, quite come through so that was the first thing they were facing they had no barely any pre-production time they just started off they started off filming the uh, Gollum and Bilbo scene which is the best scene in the which film which is the best yeah. scene in the film I think exactly. that's, that's pretty universal yeah. right and yeah. why is that yeah. because they spent two weeks on it and that's the one scene that they had been preparing for and, and it stands out like a beacon yeah. in that yeah. film doesn't it I like parts of it I think it some of the dwarfs parts of it though, I think some it? of the dwarf stuff is great my other favourite moment and I think if he'd have captured this tone for the whole thing is when the dwarves sing Misty Mountains. Mm. 
and they do this kind of low, yeah, guttural, and you almost get this feeling of this very grounded sense of what the film. But then it just goes CGI overload because it then got pushed to three films, which is arguably, so. Where did that come in? They'd already filmed the major blocks of both films, and they were just going to do pickup shots. And then the studio or whoever decided, actually, this is going to be a trilogy. So the pickup shots became almost a whole nother film. And they had to quickly rewrite The Desolation of Smaug to be a middle film. And all that stuff from the dragon onwards was invented. The scene in Brie was invented. And it was just kind of glued together. It doesn't really hang together that well. And as we all know, The Hobbit is not a big book. No. No, no it's absolutely it's a- not. And the thing that really got me, there is a single sentence in the book that mentions the, the, uh, the giants when they're trying to get over the mountains. And it's a single sentence, and they turned it into a 20-minute action scene. Yeah. And I thought, guys, you're padding this out. Yeah, that's what it seemed like, is uh, a lot of padding for time. Mm, yeah. And that's not going to be the best experience for the viewer. No. But there's parts of it I really like across all three films. So I, I can't completely slate them, but as a trilogy, it doesn't really hold up. I can see why it hasn't been received anywhere near the level of Lord of the Rings. Mm. I think that's pretty safe to say. The cast were brilliant. I thought the cast were excellent. They really did a great piece of work. But again, it comes back to the script was rushed and it yep. was just padding. And yeah, you just think. They also put it out into the cinema on this sort of strange 48, 48 frames a second. second. I didn't see it. I, I, and I'm glad I didn't see it. It came out with a headache, I can tell you. Yeah. Um, it didn't go down well. No, oh, it's terrible. He tried to defend it, but it quickly got dropped because audiences hated 48 frames a second well, in 3D. I, I'm not as anti it as Neil was. No, 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 I'm not. The problem I'm... was that you saw everything. So nothing was... You, your brain does most of the stuff for you. It's my problem with 3D as well. But it was giving you everything. My eyes were turning to get everything out and I unfortunately sat at the front row so <laughs> I kind of my eyes were going sideways outwards and then inwards and then and, and and you instead of concentrating on one thing you're concentrating on everything yeah. and no it didn't work for me horrible I mean, I mean I'm a I, I do like 3D but I think 48 frames a second yeah. it, it doesn't well, work for me so. well it made the 3D much lighter which is one of the main things with 3D right. at Dark mm-hmm. yeah. but 48 frames a second did make it lighter Anyway, I'm conscious of time, guys. So, I've just got a couple of last questions on this. So we can all agree that wasn't his finest moment. Correct. He's gone on from there. He's produced Mortal Engines, which has been one of the big flops at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yep. But he also made the documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, which was so good, I couldn't even get through it all. Uh, I thought yeah. it was an incredible piece of work. I was absolutely... I've never seen any, anything like it, really. Mm. So it was... Everybody should see it. Everyone should see it. I I have no words for it. It's so moving. Um, You can't watch that and not be absolutely shaken by it. So, yeah, I recommend that. It's a fantastic piece of work. He just put the footage through through their computer like they would for Mm. A Hobbit or whatever. They just thought, oh, let's see what happens. And the results were incredible. Once they put those missing frames in, anybody who hasn't seen it, it is... Yeah, it's unbelievable. I, that was my problem with it. it. It was just too realistic, yeah. and the stuff it was touching on yeah. was. Yeah. But there was parts of the end which I don't think you've seen, where they no. they capture German soldiers, and it's and they start yeah. talking. And you think, whoa, well, that's not what I've heard. That's different. Yeah. And then they get home, and there's that you should see the whole thing, Jeff. Yeah. Really, visually, it's stunning. You know, yes. when it goes from 
overcranked or undercranked or whatever that that they did with the and it goes into this sort of smooth 24 frames per second with audio with color your brain just goes oh this is real no yeah. we're here yeah you know it's it's no longer and you're not watching special effects every time there's an explosion yeah that could kill someone yeah yeah and that's the weird thing your brain is getting used to is I'm not watching a movie every time that something you're watching an explosion go off yeah. near these men, one of them might die in real time right in front of yeah. you. And it's a strange harrowing It does experience. feel like you're there almost. Yeah, I mean, is, yeah. in a strange way. Apparently you the 3D is like... amazing, but I, yeah. I, what it's like no, in 3D, I can't imagine. No, I don't think that. Be and, clever, uh, right? the, thing, the thing that, I, I, that, that affected me was that it took first World War footage and turned it into Vietnam footage. That is spot on. That's what I felt about it. It was so realistic. Absolutely. And and it just... And to have the voices. And the voices, yes. Yeah, the voiceovers. The the decision to have no narrator, just telling you history lessons, to have the recorded voices of the men talking about their own experiences. Oh, my goodness. It's just... And digitally cleaned up as well. So that everything... Absolutely heartbreaking. Yes. His motion picture film career... He's at an odd point. His documentary career could really take off if he I wanted. I think I honestly feel he's semi-retired. I don't think he's... I, think so I wouldn't be shocked if he never directed a film again. And I don't blame him. He's, he's more than proved himself and you know, in so many ways in films. So That's my theory. Um, there is a rumour he may go back to the low-budget splatter, but personally, I... What about the Tintin film he's supposed to be making? Do you think that's gone That's now? never going to happen, no. Because the first one... <laughs> Famous Sorry. last words. That's never going to happen. <laughs> uh, never okay, happen. I think it's unlikely because <laughs> the first one by Spielberg that he produced didn't, I don't think it landed as big as they wanted it to. No. And that, that was what, seven years it. ago? Yeah. I, I loved, loved it. it. It's a great film. It. It's a great film. If you haven't it's seen it, especially in 3D, 3D, see it's fantastic. Yeah. But it didn't, I don't think it made a big enough splash. The wheels yeah. would have been in motion by now, I think, if he was going to. Yeah, no, that's true. I don't think there'll be any, I personally don't think there'll be any Tintin sequel. Well, that's a sad note to end on, but... Sorry. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, maybe he will find his mojo again. We don't know. Maybe more time resting. Might come back and do something. Absolutely. Absolutely fantastic. Phil, thank you very much for that. Thank you. And I look forward to speaking about another director with you next month. Thank you.